again and welcome to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, lecturer in literature here at Campion College. The Greek myths contain myriad wonders and horrors in equal measure. With every triumphant theft of fire from the gods, there'll be an eternal torture of having one's liver eaten daily by an eagle. On one end of a sword, there'll be a brave Perseus standing up against a terrible Gorgon, but on the other side of that blade stands a terrified, suffering Medusa, having been cruelly transformed into a creature against her will. In the Greek myths, humanity struggles to survive amidst a world of magic and capricious gods, and fundamental human concerns play out in grand metaphor, delighting and terrifying us at once. We're discussing Greek myth today, their defining features and their significance, because they've been selected by Mr. Thomas Flynn, lecturer in classical languages here at Campion College, as some of the texts that you should explore if you're interested at all in the liberal arts. So, Mr. Thomas Flynn, thank you so much for your text selection and for joining me today to answer some questions. Thank you, Colin. So, Greek myths. Uh, What exactly are we talking about here? That's a very broad... We're talking about the stories that the ancient Greeks told themselves and told other people about the world and the universe and why things are as they are. Now, the, the, the way in which they mythologically measured the, the breadth of their understanding of the world exactly, and their history. And, okay. exactly. Now, the important thing to remember, of course, is there's no such thing as the Greek myth, in that there's one single book that's got, rather, they are things that inform mm. um, so much of Greek and, of course, Roman. Many of which are contradictory. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they play with those contradictions. They're quite happy. Euripides uh, is quite happy in one to have a play about Helen, uh, about Troy, where Helen was at Troy all the time. He's also quite happy to have another version of the story where Helen actually, she didn't spend any time at Troy. She was um, in Egypt the whole time. So, uh, yeah, they're, 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 they're well aware of the contradictions because that is the nature of mythology. My recommendation, so there are, you, you pick that up willy-nilly if you read ancient literature. Reading ancient literature is difficult. I'm giving you here today, folks, the cheater's guide. Um, so there are, um, there have been, of course, uh, collections of stories published in modern era called Collections of Greek Myths. Mm. And there are numerous ones. I recommend anyone who actually wants to study the liberal arts become acquainted with them. Now, sure, you could read the entirety of the Iliad, Surviving Greek Tragedy, the um, Hellenistic poems, and uh, numerous other texts. Sure, that'd be great. But an easier way in is just to pick up a children's collection of Greek myths and start reading. Mm. Um, I recommend... Can, can I specifically suggest... You can. Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, Wonder Book for Boys and Girls. I know it's, it, it, it tips more into the fairy tale kind of quality of them, but... Um, and, and that's readable by a modern reader? Okay, wonderfully so. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay, well, there's a good start. Nathaniel Hawthorne's... Uh, Wonder Book for Boys and Girls. Wonder Book for Boys and Girls. Yes, there's number one on your list, folks. Ring ding. Here's number two. Tales of the Greek Heroes by Roger Lancelin Green. Mm. Now, I'm going to say his surname is Green. Um, so, Roger Lancelin Green. I'm just going to say the whole thing. Um, <laughs> it's like Orson Scott Card. I, I, I never know where the surname falls. So I just call him the whole thing. Is it Scott Card? Anyway... Um, Roger Lansing Green, he had a bit of a, a corner of the market on this sort of thing. He's done, he did collections of Norse myths, he did collections of Egyptian myths, and he did, the, he did uh, two or three different collections of Greek myths. He did one about the tale of Troy, and this one is the tales of the Greek heroes. So um, I'd recommend them all, also the non-Greek myth books as well. Um, they're well-told retellings. They're told for children. The nastier bits, the more shocking bits are left out. <laughs> but um, it, what it does for 
just I'm talking now to potential students of the liberal arts or actual students of the liberal arts, um, is it gives you a shorthand way of acquiring knowledge of allusions that ancient authors make all the time Ooh. and references. Now, um, when I say ancient authors, not just Greek authors, because the Romans appropriated the Greek myths, sort of holus bolus, and applied them sometimes actually, sometimes inaptly to their own gods and to the extent that in English literature, and I think in uh, literature in other European languages, for a very long time it was customary to translate Greek gods, and Greek um, names, into the Roman equivalents. So we had, um, so, um, tra- so tra- translations of Homer, Jupiter doesn't look in from one end to the other quite, but uh, is, is, uh, Zeus is translated into Jupiter. Now, actually, it's not true. Mythologically speaking, as far as the history of the myth is concerned, Jupiter and Zeus are certainly the same god. They are the ancient Indo-European sky god, Dios, Father Dios, the sky father. But there are others where, so for example, Liber, uh, the free one, so that he was actually he was the god for the Romans of the grapes and the vines. They naturally connected him to Bacchus, Dionysus, yeah. the Greek god. Now, Bacchus and Dionysus, of course, does have connections to vines but he's not he's not a sort of agricultural god he's a god of wild yeah. release so and the, 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 and it's not entirely always clear that the romans necessarily paid attention to the fact that liber would not necessarily be the same as bacchus sometimes they do sometimes they don't and equally it's not entirely until very recent times i think um even quite serious classical scholars have not really bothered to pay attention to distinctive roman myths Certainly, so I recommend that we're right at the lower level, folks, and that is to so pick up one of these children's collections of Greek myths, Roger Lansing Green, Colin mentioned, uh, recommends Nathaniel Hawthorne. There's also Kathleen Lines did the Faber book of Greek legends, I think it is, Ooh. which is a collection of some of them stories she wrote herself and some of them are stories from other sources. I think maybe one of Hawthorne's versions is in there as well. So these are all, yeah, if you read these, you then begin to get the illusions. And uh, knowing it, so um, you won't have the experience that um, I've had with students who don't know who the children of Leto are. Who are the children of Leto, Colin? Don't judge me. Okay. Now I mentioned um, what you can't find, and this is slightly disappointing. Is um, it's not very easy to come across collections of specifically Roman myths, mm. and um, so because the, because the Romans very early on did kind of adopt the Greek story to their vernacular, and it's it's quite funny. I I, I gave some students a version of. Well, they were doing a Latin a text about uh, the fall of Icarus, uh, so the escape of uh, Icarus and his father, Daedalus. So the escape of Daedalus and Icarus's son from the clutches of the labyrinth, uh, and how uh, Icarus fell from heaven because he allowed his wings to melt. And so um, I, I thought, well, okay, quickly, and I went and got a copy of Robert Graves' Greek Myths and photocopied and gave to the students. And um, I discovered that actually Graves had simply taken the story straight out of Ovid, out of the Latin text, um, because the, the Roman writers were so happy to just apply the Greek stories and retell them in Latin. But there are specifically Latin stories I've alluded to, and the, the people are now beginning to, scholars are now actually really taking a serious look at the Latin myths, the true, the, the original Latin myths. But uh, one book I would recommend, it was one of Winston Churchill's favourite books, and this is The Lays of Ancient Rome by Thomas Babington Macaulay, um, published in the middle of the 19th century. And This is not in the children's... No, it is. Yes, really? It certainly would be. Wow. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a school book. Winston Churchill memorised passages of it when he was at school. Wow, and, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, not familiar with this at um, all. So The Lays of Ancient Rome are written in um, ballad metre, 
Right. And so Macaulay, what he was trying to do is uh, reconstruct the presumably the sort of the songs that would have been sung that were the sources of Roman history, the Roman history that we have. I don't really know much about how accurate a picture of those kind of things they were. Obviously, the meter would have been totally different, but um, it is a charming sing-song meter. It repays to um, read aloud. So uh, it's quite. I don't know much about ballads, but it's quite striking that this is a poem that begins which you wouldn't expect, with the villain, um, or at least the antagonist. So, Lars Porsner of Clusium, by the nine gods he swore, that the grace house of Tarquin should suffer wrong no more. By the nine gods he swore it, and named a trysting day, and bade his messengers ride forth, east and west, and south and north, to summon his array. So this is a poem about after the Tarquins, these are the last kings of Rome, were thrown out of Rome, and the foundation of the Roman Republic and how um, the Tarquins tried to get it back by getting their allies, the kings of Etruria, Tuscany, and how the Romans stopped them. So this is how Horatius held the bridge, and this is the great story. There need not be a word of truth in any of it, but it's a story the Romans told, and it's a story Horatius's family and descendants told about their great ancestor, that he held the bridge so that the, um, the uh, Romans had time to chop the bridge down so the army couldn't take, so the enemies couldn't take Rome. And, so it's, and then he swims across the Tiber in full armour. And there's the great line, it's, it's full of quotations. You suddenly realise, oh, that's where that remark comes from, that phrase comes from. The massed ranks of Tuscany could scarce forbear to cheer. You may not like the poetry, I happen to like it, I happen to think it's not poetry if it doesn't scan. And I, mean, I look askance at poems that don't rhyme. Um, that's not true, ultimately. But uh, it, it, it's a great read, it's a cracking read. It works best when you read it aloud. And once you get an ear for the meter, you can do it. And um, so I uh, highly recommend The Lays of Ancient Rome by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Some enterprising individual has recently reprinted it and, re- and retypeset it, but you can find it all over the place, so... It gives you a way in, and uh, that, that, that's a, a rather neglected aspect of in 19th century English literature, I think, that should definitely come wow. roaring back. So what is it about these ancient Greek myths and, and Roman myths, which are sort of folding in as well, that you think speaks to us? Like, why, why did we tell them in ancient Greece? Why do we continue to explore them now? I think so myth is always there. Um, all people say, so that I still come across this idea that some 19th century classical scholars were under the impression the Romans had no myths at all, and that's absurd. And all peoples have myths, and we have different kinds of myths, and modern peoples have myths too. And there's stories we tell ourselves that don't necessarily speak directly to truth, but they tell a different kind of truth. Mm. What really is striking about uh, Greek myth is that because it, what stands at the head of Greek literature is Homer. And you can argue about Hesiod or something, but we'll just start with Homer. I mean, is Hesiod before Homer or not? But um, and the, and the thing about Homer is, in comparison to any similar ancient text in any from any other language, any other culture, is it's absolutely at the same level of sophistication as anything else. Later, yeah. it doesn't. And so, um, and what Homer did is he purified a lot of the myths so that the, um, you don't get some of the really striking things that are the survivals of, of very early man and these sort of very strange ideas. I mean, Jasper Griffin has play with this and he tells a story of um, one of the tribes of the Amazon, for, uh, a recounting from an, uh, an, an anthropologist. And this is about some bloke who has, who goes on some adventure and his buttocks get bitten off by a crocodile and uh, he has to reshape them with mashed potato. Of course, um, in the Amazon, of course, there are people who... Um, Potato can be part of the myth because it's native to that land. 
But um, and so there are th- and, and there's so these really kind of really very weird stories. And in the Greek cases, a lot of those stories were very heavily refined, and that stuff just doesn't appear at all. And, and, and so, so I think what spe- it speaks to is, is is a certain eternity of the stories, and, and the etern- even when there's situations we don't necessarily connect to. Uh, I'm thinking of the story of Antigone, where she cannot bear that her brothers both lie unburied, or her, her, her brother lies unburied, and so she breaks the law to go and take and to bring him into burial. And you can understand the impulse, but equally, this is the striking thing is you understand the Greek impulse is actually she did something terribly wrong. Um, so we look at the story of Antigone in one way, which is one good, but there's also another way of looking, and and, it, and so the myths allow us to sort of really just question certain ideas. Mm. Is there something in how inherently cruel they are? I mean, it, it seems like well, humanity is constantly under threat in, in a way that, uh, of course, in later fairy tales, children are in dangerous situations, but there's not quite that sense of uh, an almost arbitrary universe that would slap somebody down as, as a curse. Well, it depends really. I mean, this is the point is, um, the myths are one thing, but what our sources for them are something else. So there are the stories which are, are around, and it's what the authors we read have done with them right. that matters. Uh, so, yes, that, that's true in some cases. In other cases, the attraction is something different. It depends really on the mind of the author you're reading. But the stories, um, and, and they work very well. It's, they don't just work as, here's the necessary background information you have to do. Mm. Is they work, and that, it's very straightforward. Lots of authors have done it. Larson Green, Hawthorne, Lines, loads. Percy Jackson, though he's reworking in with stories in the modern day, yep. is you can take the materials and you can tell a really good story that's completely separated from the source materials from which we get them, and, and it still it speaks very uh, it speaks very powerfully to us. The story of Orpheus and Eurydice mm. works at a mythic level because you don't need to know any particular telling. This great poet, he loved his wife. Mm. Um, his wife died. He goes down to the kingdom of the dead sings to the king of the dead so that to let him release uh, uh, his wife the king, the king of the dead relents and says you can lead her out but you must not look back and so he leads her out they stumble he looks back and she's taken from him forever and that story is powerful you don't have to read it in any ancient law yeah. any ancient language that's that story even in that bald summing I'm doing off the top of my head I think speaks a certain power not because of me but because of the story itself so mm. yeah they, they, they are great stories, and um, if you're going to come to camping and study the liberal arts, or anywhere, if you've read them, it'll help. So is there any uh, that you are particularly drawn to? I mean, you, you mentioned Orpheus and Eurydice. Is that one of your favourites? Yeah, that's one of my favourites, but I have a, a sentimental attachment. Is many, many years ago, right on the edge of memory, I was listening to a radio play, my parents had the radio on, and it was a radio play about... Antig- what happened to Antigone next and Antigone in the underworld and it, um, I don't think it may not be very good it would be one of those things where somebody says lots of pretentious abstract nouns or something <laughs> but I was fascinated by it and I was given a, um, a copy of uh, I think Kathleen Lyne's book um, The Greek Myths as sort of explain it and, that, and that's what led me on the path to classics so I have a sentimental attachment to the story of Antigone but for me it's sort of like Tolkien as they're in the there's so much in the background of everything I read and think that I can't really pick them out. It's, it's, it's just, ah, oh, it's one of those. Yeah, I get you. All right, well, that was our uh, introduction to Greek myths. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do tell your friends. 
And if you're so inclined, give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. That email is conversations at campion.edu.au. I want to thank Thomas for joining me today. Thank you, Colin. And we'll be back next time with another Campion Conversation. We hope that you can join us then. Thank you.